1: Good to have all of you with us again for another Political Rewind today. I'm Bill Nygut. Uh, I haven't said to you for a long time how interested I am in hearing from you about how you're dealing with the coronavirus, whether you're having to go into a workplace and uh, the issues you may or may not be having doing that, whether you continue to shelter in place. I really am always interested in hearing your personal stories, and, and I do try my best to respond to them. I've got to tell you, for those of you who have written me recently, and I haven't gotten back to you yet, I, I admit it, I've gotten a little behind. I'm going to try to spend some time this weekend uh, uh, really responding to you, because we're all in this together, uh, and, and I, I really personally get a lot out of hearing your stories. They help me understand and put my situation into context uh, in, a, in a way that I really appreciate. So please do write me at bnigut, B-N-I-G-U-T, at gpb.org. Lots of political news to talk about today, so let's get right to our panel. Jim Galloway, the lead political writer for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, whose columns you read on Wednesdays and Sundays in the AJC, and who oversees the Political Insider blog at AJC.com. Glad to, of course, have you with us, Jim. How are you holding up? Well, I've made it through another week, you know, uh, separate but together. I'm thinking it's time to do a count. I don't, I haven't counted how many weeks we've all been we've been doing this show by remote, but I think maybe this weekend I'll do that and on, on Monday talk a little bit about it. But I'm of course glad that uh, you're with us. Um, we're also joined today uh, by Stephen Fowler, who is the political reporter for GPB Radio. And uh, Stephen, you especially have been doing a lot of work on elections, on voting issues and uh, uh, have been reporting a lot of that on the radio, but at GP news, uh, gpbnews.org. How are you, Stephen?
2: Doing well, Bill. You know, this is the first morning that I felt like I actually have a handle on the fire hose of news that has happened from budgets to elections <laughs> to coronavirus. And so, knock on wood, for the next hour at least, I feel prepared.
1: Uh, well you're a better person than I am I'll tell you that Jackie Cushman is uh, back with us and we're awfully glad to have you here Jackie Jackie of course is a conservative columnist I read her at jackiecushman.com uh, she's also an author uh Jackie I always you know we're not broadcasting a picture these days so I'll let you plug your book just by your voice your most recent okay. book thank you
3: thank you bill So my most recent book is Our Broken America, Why Both Sides Need to Stop Ranting and Start Listening. Um, And in fact, just this past weekend, I was on um, a video with um, Ed Bacon, who is a pastor at St. Luke's Episcopal Church downtown, where I'm a member. So if anyone wants to check out the St. Luke's um, tape, we, we spent an hour talking about why it's important to listen and to also love those that you might disagree with.
1: Well, OK, that's terrific. Um, I'm glad you're back with us. It's, it's been a while, but it's good to hear your voice on the show again. Theron Johnson, who is the CEO, the founder and the CEO of Paramount Consulting, a government uh, relations uh, consulting group. But Theron, uh, two other very important items to mention in introducing you today. Um, first of all, you've been named senior advisor to the Biden campaign in Georgia this kind of goes along with the credential you had in the re-election campaign of President Obama when you served in a senior capacity in the Southeast with him. We congratulate you on that. But, Theron, there's something even much more important than that. You're a new dad. Tell us about yeah. your baby.
4: <laughs> oh, man, listen, I'm, I'm so excited, Bill. Uh, Tyson, Lynn Johnson. Uh, it's about three weeks old, and my wife Chana and I are so excited. Uh, sleepless nights, but he's just a bundle of joy, and we're truly blessed.
1: Uh, well, we're we're so happy for you. Congratulations. We've seen pictures of your baby on various social media platforms, and it there is nothing like being a new parent. Congratulations, Thank mm-hmm. Um. All right, I want to make a quick correction. Uh, Yesterday in the show, we talked a lot about elections, and we talked about whether the Secretary of State's office and counties, how they were preparing for uh, the August 11th runoff and for November. And uh, one of our panelists said yesterday, when we talked about the fact that the Secretary of State's office is not going to send out absentee ballot requests across uh, the state as they did for the June 9th primary, one of our panelists said, you know, for the June 9th primary, the Secretary of State's office sent them out to active and inactive voters. Um, I got a note from uh, Ari Schaefer at the Secretary of State's office saying, that, well, we didn't. We just sent them out to the 6.9 million active voters. I just want to make that clear. And then I said something about hoping that for November, particularly with the big rush of absentee ballots, we're likely to see that um, I, I wish the Secretary of State would uh, make sure that counties... Can count ballots early. He also pointed out that in fact that did happen June 9th. I did know that. I did not know that they'd extended that rule for November so that if we do have a huge flood of absentee ballots coming into many counties, the counties will be allowed by the Secretary of State to begin uh, counting, separating those ballots out, prepping them to be reported on election night. So I was pleased that they corrected me on that. Okay. Um, Jim Galloway, quick item about something you put up in the jolt at AJC.com this morning. Uh, yesterday uh, on the show, we also talked about the fact that the governor called a special session. Uh, he wants to do some fixes, he says, to the Hurricane Michael relief bill. and But there are some suspicions that he may have larger motivations and intentions. And Jim, you reported this morning that even the lieutenant governor who is an ally of the governor's, along now with um, the Speaker of the House, David Ralston, are both pushing back. They don't want a special session.
5: Interesting, Jim. Oh, Absolutely. Uh, House Speaker David Ralston and Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan kind of uh, put their names to a letter that was very critical of of Kemp's decision to call a special session, the dates of which have not been set yet. Uh, and you know there was a little yeah. little bit of a threat in there. Uh, uh, Kemp had vetoed House bill 991. it was a, a bill to to set up a, a special board to oversee uh, uh, con- uh, contracts on uh, health care contracts with the, with the state. Uh, and they' they're threatening to to override that veto. Which uh, which is which is very interesting. This is here, here's the, the situation is that you've got 236 lawmakers up for reelection in November. Uh, Kemp is not. Duncan is not. But but everyone else is. And when you have a special session, you can't raise money and you're kind of glued to your seat in Atlanta. And and so it's not going
1: down very well. Uh, Theron, there are some suspicions, and, and I'm, I don't. We don't know have any reason to think they're founded, but nevertheless, there are some Democrats, especially metro area Democrats, who, based on the wording that Kemp used about oversight matters that might be included in the special call, that he might be uh, uh, looking for an opportunity to extend his feud with Keisha Lance Bottoms by entertaining uh, more debate over the st- a state takeover of the airport, but I, we don't, I mean, that's all speculation, right, Theron?
4: Yeah, it's it's all speculation, <laughs> but um, as always, uh, Jim does a wonderful job of letting people like me, who've been up all night, um, read the jolt <laughs> and sort of make sure that what I've been hearing and, <laughs> and thinking uh, is true, but listen, for Speaker Rawson and Lieutenant Governor Duncan to come out in a letter and sort of, Mm-hmm. Um, push back and oppose this special session many of which if you just read it i mean they just kind of summed it up that they think it's sort of unnecessary um is is unfortunate because you now have these three democrat uh, these three republican leaders uh, quite quite frankly not on the same page however i do know the governor does understand the climate in which we're in right now uh, hurricane relief funding is something that We all support, we do want to make sure that 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 funding is there, but in regards to the oversight uh, bill uh, regarding the world's busiest and most efficient airport, Atlanta, Hartsfield Jackson International (laughs) Airport, um, I think that the mayor and her team are going to be prepared to make the case again and again and again that they are totally capable and competent enough to run the airport. But I would tell you, this is where her team is going to be um, to contact with uh, the speaker and the lieutenant governor, by whom which the speaker has been pretty supportive uh, of this process. And and we'll just see how it unfolds.
1: Um, Stephen, uh, of course, it's the governor who gets to set the agenda for a special session. Nevertheless, the Democrats in the House, the uh, caucus, is saying, if we're going to have a special session, we'd better take up a full expansion of Medicaid. Um, maybe that's one more reason the governor may want to rethink that. He, I'm not quite sure that's a, an issue that um, does Republicans a whole lot of good in these condi- under these circumstances of the pandemic uh, in the weeks before an election, Stephen.
2: Yeah, you know, anything that happens in a special session or even talking about a special session is walking a tightrope. You have Democrats thinking uh, that they can pick off some vulnerable Republicans in the suburban areas to try to regain control of the House and mm-hmm. take charge and redistricting and things like that. You have some Republicans that would probably rather not revisit uh whether it's HB 991 or other things, to put targets on their backs. Um, and really, you don't have people that want maybe more time at the Capitol with social distancing and mask and other things. You don't want that as another visibility thing about the way the governors handle the coronavirus pandemic. Yeah. And so, you know, anything that would happen under the gold dome between now and Election Day could probably end up hurting more than helping if you're a Republican lawmaker.
1: Okay. Um, we'll watch how that unfolds. Jackie, I want to turn to uh, some news out of our neighbor to the north, Tennessee, where they just held uh, primary elections. And there were two elections, a Democratic and a Republican uh, election, uh, primary elections for a United States Senate that I think bear a little conversation because they tell us a larger picture and may be very important in terms of how we look at Georgia right now. So- With that in mind, the Republican U.S. Senate primary was won by Bill Haggerty. He had been President Trump's ambassador to Japan, Um, and he got the full-throated support of the president, even as he and his opponent both— Clung as closely as possible to President Trump throughout the campaign. They both claimed they were the true Trumpites uh, and accused the other of not being one. But the president came down fully in favor of Haggerty, even to the extent of agreeing to do a town meeting with Haggerty on the night before the election. Okay, why does that become relevant to us? I think, and I want to hear your take on it, Jackie, this reminds us that certainly in Trump. In, in the Trump South, having his endorsement, his name is still a very powerful force. And we understand it's one of the reasons so many Republican incumbents are nervous about ever uh, uh, in any way uh, going up against him. But it also it gives us an opportunity to look at it in terms of Doug Collins versus Kelly Leffler in a way. Jackie, your thoughts on that?
3: Well, I think it does in some ways and doesn't in other ways. Um, so, first of all, let's talk about the Tennessee. You can also look at the Kentucky um, that happened early when Marshall won for Republicans. But I do think what you see is a couple of things. One, clearly in a Republican primary, it helps to have the sitting president endorse you. I mean, right? I mean, I think that's just basic. That's just the way it is. Um, nothing unusual about that. When you have a sitting president of any party, either party, endorse the primary, I would think it would be very helpful. Um, I think secondarily, I think um, people need to remember that a lot of times, um, you know, people talk about Trump's tweets, Trump's Trump that, but a lot of Republicans can really, a lot of my friends that vote for Trump say, you know what, I don't, I don't appreciate his demeanor, I don't appreciate his tweets, but you know what, his policies are great, and I'm voting for his policies, and I don't want the policies of whoever the Democrat would be and whatever they represent. So I think there's a lot of that going along. Um, But I do think the the Senate race, and we can discuss it in depth, here in Georgia is a little more complicated because you have, one, Doug Collins, who has a a record of service in Georgia as a congressman, and Senator Loeffler, who was appointed by Brian Kemp. So I think it gets a little more confusing and a little more challenging um, than I think some of the other races.
1: I think that makes sense. But, Jim, I take Jackie's point. Um, nevertheless, we can understand why both Doug Collins and Kelly Leffler are clinging closely to the president and why either of them would love to see an endorsement mm-hmm. from him. I'm not sure. It'll be interesting to see whether that happens um, before that November 3rd special election, Jim.
5: Yeah, I think uh, I, it's. Uh, if it happens, I think it, it, it will happen late. But. Uh, What's interesting here is, of course, you you have Leffler and and Doug Collins engaged in what what's essentially a, a Republican primary, uh, in a, in a general election climate, and it has put David Perdue, uh, uh, who's also up for re-election, facing John Ossoff and a and 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 a Libertarian in a, in a difficult spot because it makes him it makes it harder for him to go to the middle. Uh, uh uh it's it's likewise i i know we've talked about this before but those races in the, in, in the 9th and 14th congressional district where you have a republican establishment that's really trying to 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 back both both of the under underdogs in this case simply because they they feel that the 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 the, the leaders uh uh matt gertler in in, in the 9th uh and uh marjorie taylor green in in the in the
1: 14th that they're really too far out there Uh, and could hurt them in November. Um, We're going to talk about those races in a minute, though. But Theron, before we leave Tennessee, on the Democratic side of uh, Senate primary up there, it was interesting that we once again had an activist come along, uh, Marquita Bradshaw, a longtime environmental activist. Uh, She does have, her family has been, involved in Tennessee politics over the years. She's not a complete outsider who comes from nowhere. Nevertheless, here's a, an environmental activist who beats the DSCC, the Democratic Senate Campaign Committee's uh, choice for that seat, uh, James Mackler. And, and Theron, I ask you this, is this another example of where the Democratic Party, like with an AOC or just uh, very recently in Missouri, a Cory Bush beating a longtime Democratic incumbent, where the Democratic Party's got to start paying much more attention to these younger, uh, energized activists coming along to take their place in the party.
4: Bill, to echo on something that Jim just said, which is you got a lot of these candidates who are running – sort of special jungle primaries or primaries and really in sort of a general election season. And even though we still have less than 90 days to go to November, what we're finding in the Democratic Party is that this is a change election season. And you're going to see it here in Georgia too. Mm -hmm. If you are an establishment candidate or has been deemed as an establishment candidate with endorsements from organizations like the DSCC, or if you even are an incumbent on the Democratic side, you are in trouble because I think the electric right now is looking for change. They're looking for new energy, new ideas. And so I think what we saw in Tennessee uh, was something that a lot of people probably didn't expect because with having the endorsement of the DSCC, it brings you staff, but more importantly brings you a lot of financial resources to be able to run a statewide campaign. And so I think that, you know, we got to look very closely at what happened there and, and places and other places in the country. And I do think that, you know, the DSEC has got to make sure that they now support whoever they want to support to make sure that not only that person wins the primary, but they don't come out too battered and bruised where they're unable to win the general in November.
1: Okay, well, it's going to be interesting uh, uh, to watch how these young activists. Like In Missouri, uh, Theron, Corey Bush was general— was a genuine outsider. She came of age in politics during uh, the Ferguson uh, protests um, after the the killing of Michael Brown, and she slowly worked her way into a more and more prominent position, and was able to oust another African American, longtime, I think, ten-term uh, uh, representative, William Lacy Clay. So those kinds of activists are making, starting to make their mark there. Well, they
4: had actually ran against each other before, uh, and she came close to to Mm. defeating Congressman Clay. Uh, But what you saw, Jim, is is exactly – I'm sorry, Bill, what, what I'm saying is that the electric, the climate on the Democratic side has really shifted. And I think that younger, more energetic, more progressive candidates are taking advantage of this movement right now.
1: All right. Um, I just thought it'd be interesting to take a quick look at all of that. But uh, Jim already mentioned it. Stephen, let me come to you on this. Uh, Republicans have uh, two contests in the 9th and the 14th that Jim has mentioned. Uh, Each of them, uh, you know, runoffs that are going to be decided next Tuesday. Um, And each of them has a candidate who uh, I think, and we'll ask Jackie about this in a minute, but Stephen, who are pretty far to the right when it comes to uh, conservative politics. Marjorie Taylor Greene in the 14th, she came in first in the primary. Nevertheless, she didn't go over 50 percent, so she is facing opposition. Uh, But we know that she has made statements in support of the thinking of QAnon. Uh, And in the 9th, Republican Matt Gertler's uh, runoff race, Matt Gertler, Dr. No in the Georgia House, has uh, stood side-by-side with white extremists. Uh, Are either, first from your point of view, Stephen, what are the dynamics of these races? And then I want to ask Jackie about it. Well,
2: you know, looking at early voting data, uh, this is not going to be nearly the same level of turnout that you had in the primary, where in the ninth and the 14th, you had well over 100,000 Republican voters show up, and you had several candidates to choose from leading to this runoff, But you're going to have a lower turnout in this race so far. There's about, uh, you know, 30,000 or so people that have voted in the 14th Republican runoff and about 50,000 in the ninth. And so the lower turnout race could end up benefiting the establishment-backed candidates, John Cowan in the 14th district and uh, Andrew Clyde in the ninth district. Because uh, you know there are the, the the more establishment voters that tend to show up for runoffs and things there, but this uh, there there really is no danger of the seat flipping into Democratic control. There is a Democratic runoff for the ninth district, but uh, you know this is, uh, you know what happens on Tuesday is pretty much going to determine who the next two uh, congressional representatives are from Georgia. So that's kind of the dynamic of where things stand.
5: Uh yeah, uh, it, this is what 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 we have here is is kind of a and I, and I wrote this in a column up uh, uh earlier this week is it, this could very well be a glimpse of what the Republican Party becomes uh post Trump whether 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 the president loses on November 3rd or whether he, he goes for four, four more years. Uh it's a, it's it's a the these leading candidates, you know, they're, they're 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 walking away from all most of the traditional uh, GOP positions you know uh, 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 d- 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 the 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 hawkishness of uh, on defense the 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 deficit is is virtually uh, has no has no uh, has no def- uh, has no meaning anymore uh, just a, a trillion trillions and trillions and trillions of dollars are being heaped on it. uh it's it's uh social conservatism is hanging in there, but that's that's about it. uh this, we've got this trend toward uh, conservative nationalism that, 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 that revolves a great deal around personalities here.
3: So as you, these, these, um, because you're right, Stephen, earlier you talked about these are really kind of the the elections because there's no real general once you get past its primary. And so voters in these areas take them very seriously. Just like in Atlanta, you have a lot of runoff races that are in the democratic side in various areas that once they, once they win on the democratic side, then they're, they're good for the general election. So I think, I think especially um, Republican, the, the voters that go out every time, they're going to show up. They're going to make sure they vote for the people that represent their values. Um, so I do think it's going to be interesting to see how they coalesce. My guess is you, you come in with some people that are some very good candidates that will represent Georgia well at the national level. Um, but, again, we have to see who, as you said, all depends on who shows up, right, to vote for those particular candidates. But I, I think it's going to be. Um, I think it's going to be good for Republicans. I, my guess is they'll, they'll, they will they'll uh, shy away from some of the more extreme candidates and go for candidates that will be able to represent Georgia nationally in a very good way.
1: So just to be clear, Jackie, um, if a Marjorie Taylor Greene, particularly uh, somebody who's embraced QAnon theories very, very openly, if she were to win— um, it, it is her brand of conservatism, which Jim talked about, nationalist think nationalistic thinking, and that sort of thing. Is is how much of a threat do you believe that can be to the Republican Party moving forward, with or without a, a Trump in the White House, as Jim uh, postulates?
3: Um, I, I don't think it's going to be much of a threat. I think if you if you see that. Um... You know, the house. The house leaders have already condemned what she said. I think you're going to see very strong stances take. I mean, I don't see it as I don't see it as the party moving somewhere. I okay. think it's see someone exercising their right to run for whatever office they want in the country.
1: Okay, but Sarah, and here's an interesting thing about that. Um, I get it. She uh, Jackie makes a very good point. Most of the Republican establishment has certainly condemned uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene, <laughs> particularly, and said they won't endorse her. But, but, voters are different from the leaders of of a of a party, and re- these are re- Repub- conservative Republican voters. If they go for these more extreme candidates, are sending a message, aren't they to the Republican Party in general?
4: Well, listen, Jackie is closer to this than I am. I would never try to be more Republican than to Jackie. <laughs> um, but I, I will, I will tell you. Uh, I do have a few republican friends um the, the few that are actually still my <laughs> friends since I've taken over the Biden uh, role in, in Georgia um but the one the one the conversation I keep hearing Bill is exactly what you said okay we understand that you got to be close to president trump as jackie just mentioned if you're a trump supporter you don't like the the divisiveness that comes out of his you know, some of the words that he speaks definitely the tweets are definitely divisive uh and, and it is not a culture of governing but you still support him because, you know, whatever reason. But what, what Mrs. Breen has done is that she's not focusing really on any policy issues, Bill. One of the things we have to point out, what's unfortunate to the voters of that congressional district, is that no one is really hearing a lot about what they would do to go to Washington to fight for, for uh, more health care, better education, infrastructure, things that your member of Congress is supposed to be talking about. But I will tell you that I do think that the Republican Party, Of Georgia, who has definitely tried to make some unsuccessful attempts to be more moderate to reach out to more minority voters. If Mrs. Green prevails, I think that they're just going to have to, quite frankly, start over. And and again, remember what I said, Bill. As I close, this is an anti-establishment election. This is a change election. And so, the closer you are to the establishment and the Republican Party, the more the voters, I think, will side with the other person. And I think we saw that in the first round of elections we just got to wait and see, can the establishment prevail in this runoff?
1: Um, I'm getting very close to having to take a break. But, Jim, before I do, as long as we're talking about runoffs for next week, before we move on to presidential, uh, this runoff, the Fulton County district attorney's race, Mark Roundtree, our friend at Landmark Communications, did a poll for WSB the other day, and it shows that uh, Fonnie Hall, his former assistant District Attorney is clobbering Paul Howard, who's been DA for what 20 years in Fulton County, and a lot of it has to do with the taint over Paul Howard on a number of fronts. Uh, as recently as this week, when the ethics, when he he ha- had to pay an ethics fine because he wasn't representing. Couple of jobs he had with nonprofits at the same time that he was working as Fulton County DA. That looks like a change election in the making too, if uh, right. Mark uh, uh, polling numbers are correct. Right, uh, Afani Willis uh, it's forty-seven percent,
5: uh, I think, and 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 Howard mm-hmm. was uh, in the very low thirties, which is which something? is which is yeah. which is a bad which is a bad sign. Uh, it is uh, uh, you, you'll recall that even the ratio the the, the the, the 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 killing uh, the 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 killing of uh, of of a uh, of a, a a fellow for DUI uh, back in June Brooks. Rayshard Rayshard Brooks uh, wow. he is uh, uh, th- that has worked into it because uh, Paul Howard uh, immediately indicted the, the 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 two police officers in that uh, to to much criticize, criticism uh, it's uh, and, and, and to to Theron's point, you got to remember. I think Brown was. F- I, I mean, Howard was first elected in nineteen ninety four. Uh, he's the first and only African American who has served in that spot. Uh, uh, Ms. Willis would yep. be the first uh, first woman to serve in that spot. So, so there is a. a, a – I, I, I think I think you're right. I think. Uh, uh, it, what, what's interesting, though, in, in that particular race is is that it kind of it, it kind of bespeaks of the old John Lew- the the John Lewis Julian Bond race back in the '80s, because Ms. Willis has put together mm-hmm. a coalition of 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 of, of African American base down on the South Side, but also getting a lot of support from Buckhead. A lot of yeah yeah. A all lot right, of, a I'm lot sorry to, to interrupt sport. all this,
1: but. I apologize. I've got to get to a break. Uh, We'll do that when we come back. A lot more politics to talk about on today's Political Rewind. With us today, uh, Stephen Fowler, GPB Radio's uh, political reporter, Democrat Theron Johnson, senior advisor to the Biden campaign, Jackie Cushman, conservative columnist, and um, Jim Galloway. Uh, Stephen, very quickly, uh, we don't have time to get a lot uh, on this right now, but um, the news broke yesterday that um, the DSCC, the Democratic Senate Campaign Committee nationally, and the state Democratic Party have filed a federal lawsuit again, Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger, and some of the counties over the long lines and the June 9th election, and their lawsuit contends that these lines and the, the mishandling of the elections in many precincts led to a disenfranchisement of voters. Um, this is an unusual lawsuit, and it's going to be interesting to see where it takes us, but just give us a quick take on that, Stephen.
2: Right. So big picture, the DSCC, the Democratic Party of Georgia and three Georgia voters allege that as far back as 2008, several large metropolitan counties have neglected to have enough polling places, to have enough staff, to have enough voting machines. That has led to long lines at the polls on Election Day and that those lines disproportionately impact black voters, non-white voters and uh, Democratic voters. And they say that both the state and these counties are responsible for those failures and for the fixes. In the June 9th primary, they had a voter in Fulton County, a 71-year-old woman who said that she tried four different times to wait in line throughout election day and finally was just exhausted in the heat and gave up. They had a voter who tried to apply for an absentee ballot, never got it, and then ended up having to wait six hours to vote. And somebody in Cobb County who, on the final day of early voting, tried to get in line at 4:30 and didn't end up voting till almost 1 a.m. And they have mm. countless examples of uh, how these counties could have and should have done things better. They say to prevent these lines.
1: What What's the remedy they're they're seeking in this suit?
2: Well, that's where it gets a little complicated. Um, You can't just force counties to add more polling places because uh, polling places like churches and other buildings have the right to say no. Um, There's a lot of legal requirements for uh, Americans with a Disability Act and other logistical things for polling places. But they want, for the general election, they want there to be more staff and more training. And if possible, more machines and places to vote, but since elections are run on a county level and they're dependent on populations and resources and who's available as poll workers, it'll be hard to get an across-the-board kind of uh, remedy, but it's just yet another example of uh, Democrats trying to strengthen voting protections for where they see that counties in the state have fallen short.
5: Yeah, uh, Bill. I also think this lawsuit is doing something in- interesting in that in that it's it's tar- targeting uh, not just the Secretary of State's office but individual counties here, and 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 yeah. and, and uh, you, as we've seen throughout this summer, you know, there's this back of back and forth over 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 who gets the blame for all the long lines and 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 and, and missteps uh, with the June nine primary, and I I think what this lawsuit is is trying to do is. Is to kind of negate this this to, to address this fear that that uh, voters could be lost in in the in the cracks between those
1: those two two battles. There is so much election new, voting news uh, that's going on, and, and Stephen and you've been paying a lot of attention to it. Mark Nisi over there at the AJC, your colleague Jim. I think um, we're gonna put we'll put together an entire show in the weeks ahead and and talk about all the issues that are uh, uh, still active ahead of the November 3rd election. Um, Theron Johnson, let let me turn to you and then to Jackie, since we're very fortunate to have now the senior advisor to the Biden campaign in Georgia on our show. And by the way, Theron, I, I, I neglect, and I shouldn't, When I the credentials I give you, I was so eager to talk to you about as a new dad to introduce you as a new dad. I I always want to be able to tell people that you are part of the Georgia gang, which airs at 830 on Sunday mornings over there on Fox five. Our friend Lori Geary's done a great job with that show. And you're a regular. So people can always watch you over there. And I'm sorry I didn't say that at the top. All right. That done. Theron, two hundred eighty million dollars. The Biden campaign says it is now reserved or has already got on the air ads between now and November 3rd. An enormous buy, and Georgia is part of that buy. And the reason I think that's particularly interesting, Theron, is because, and it's digital and TV. So for a long time, uh, you and fellow Democrats in the state have been urging the National Party. And the Biden campaign to get serious about Georgia, does does the, at least this buy, which is going to include the state as well as the leadership team that's been announced here, indicate that's really happening now?
4: Well, you know, Bill, you have been allowing me to come on your show, show for many, many years now. And I debate Jackie a lot about national politics. And Lord knows Jim <laughs> Galloway is tired of interviewing me and i'm saying hey jim this is the year we're going to turn georgia blue again and
2: unfortunately
4: you know i've been wrong for about 10 years now but i will say on this show because bill you gave me my start in radio i believe it is our time we have arrived we will turn georgia blue again and i think that The Biden campaign is showing that not only are we our first tier state anymore, Jim, you know, I used to always use that term with you when when you and I would talk, but we are a true, I mean, true battleground state. And I think that the money and the resources back that claim up. And if you look at the level of people with the diversity and the staff that we've assembled here with Simone Bell, who's a former state representative, who's my fellow senior advisor, Tracy Lewis, who's done a lot here. Uh, in Georgia. T.J. Copeland, who's a young, rising star in the Democratic Party, worked on a lot of campaigns. Reese McCraney, who worked for um, Mayor Bottoms and, and is uh, very, very uh, influential in the LGBTQ plus community. Now we have the resources and the commitment from a presidential candidate to really invest heavily um, in, in this in, in Georgia. And then lastly, Bill, is that let's not forget this week Our very own mayor did a really, really uh, good fundraiser with the vice president um, and and basically raising a lot of money here in Georgia. And so the resources are there. We got the commitment. We got the staff. We just got to run our play, get people out to vote, and hopefully we'll be victorious in November. Jackie? I
3: mean, I think, um, I mean, Theron has been very – persistent and tearful about turning the state, you know, Democratic, which I appreciate. Um, I, I do think it's going to be a battleground state. Clearly, the resources are going to be here. Democrats are putting their top leaders in to make sure that everybody, you know, gets aligned and moves forward. Um, I think it's going to be a, a real, a real slugfest. Um, I do think that that in the end, my opinion is that, that Georgia will stay Republican um, and that we'll turn out for the Republican presidential nominee. We also obviously have you know, two Senate races as well. So we have a lot and a lot going on, on the congressional side. Um, and I do think it's going to be interesting to see what happens. I think the challenge um, that the Democrats are going to have, and this is the same challenge that they had in the last, and we can debate this there, and I know we will, is that, um, you know, it, it becomes down to it. It's not about, you know, what parties you believe in, but, but which of the two candidates will you vote for? I mean, we had the same problem with Hillary Clinton. And I know I was on, on with Sarah um, on this program talking about that she was a terrible candidate, which I know Sarah didn't appreciate, but she was. Um, So, uh, and I do think that's the challenge when you come down to it. You have Joe Biden as a candidate and whoever he picks, which I do think will make a difference, and we can talk about that, and President Donald Trump. And, again, while many people will say, gosh, I I hate it when he tweets and I hate it when he does this, the the fact is he's passed some major and signed into law some major legislation. For instance, the the Great Outdoors Act this week was passed. And Democrat and Republican presidents have tried to deliver this, and it has not happened for a very long time. It's a huge win for national parks for permanent funding. And I think time and time again when you see real legislation being passed and put into law, that that will make a difference in November.
5: Okay, Bill, here's, I'm going to go out on a limb here, and I'm saying nobody believes Theron Johnson about whether this is Georgia is a swing state. Don't believe him. Don't believe him. But you can believe Donald Trump, who is advertising here, who has got TV ads up here. You know, pay attention to what they're doing. They believe that this is a, a, that that Georgia is a swing state. If they are, if they are, if they are spending money, uh, a good a good chunk on on advertising in Georgia in the summer, it's that 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 tells you yeah. that tells
1: you that, that something is different. I think that's fascinating. I, I'm curious. One thing I want to get to you in a minute on this, Stephen, but, but um, this is kind of inside baseball, Jim, but we know about this enormous buy or the reserving of time that the Biden campaign has done, and that's a very important process in a big election year because tv stations particularly yes i know a lot of the advertising will play out on digital but tv stations only have a certain amount of what they call inventory time they can distribute to candidate advertising and it appears that the biden folks have locked up an enormous amount of tv time nationally whereas the trump people haven't spent uh, to the best of my knowledge they don't have as big a buy uh, or reservations for time and inventory starts drying up if you don't jump on it right away, Jim.
5: Uh, okay, and then I, I, I will defer to the, the TV veteran on in, on on the panel well, here. St- st-
1: st- Steven?
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I think there's, you know, you take a look and, yeah, I mean, there's not really a conventional ground game happening right now because of the coronavirus pandemic. You still do have campaigns doing events and you still do have especially Trump victory in Georgia that's doing a lot of things. So a lot of people's time and attention, especially as they're stuck at home are on their TV screens or their computer screens or phone screens. And so this kind of signals the, you know, the stakes that Georgia isn't just, you know, uh, a, it's not going to be one of like running up the score if you're the Biden campaign or, you know, something, you know, just as an afterthought. But I think I will say, you know, you know, The results of this election will be the result of the work that was done in 2018 for both Democrats and Republicans. You had Stacey Abrams and the Democratic Party of Georgia running a coordinated campaign and putting people into place in places like the 9th and the 14th district so that it's not going to flip, but it may be a little bit bluer than it was the last time. And even with the Republican Party, when I talked to David Schaefer, the new chairman, when he came in, that there were... Reliably Republican states that didn't have counties that didn't have the infrastructure in place. So the groundwork is being laid for this to be a tight election in Georgia, no matter the outcome.
4: Yeah, real, real quick, Bill Stephen nailed it, and I was going to say that. Not only do you have both presidential campaigns, but so particularly in our case, the Biden campaign, we have a very, very robust coordinated campaign effort, as Stephen just mentioned, to build on the grassroots that was this infrastructure that was sort of retuned and rebuilt. And so even though we live in this new norm and this COVID-19 norm where retail politics and campaigning is going to be very, very limited or probably nonexistent, we will be able to focus on grassroots, and it will probably be a little twist to it. Again, we can't knock on doors traditionally like we used to, but I don't want our listeners and supporters of the Biden campaign to think that all we're focusing on is TV and digital. We are building a grassroots army that we want to build upon, um, that we saw that was very effective in 2018.
1: Thanks for that. Okay, got to get to our final break of the show. When we come back, though, let's listen to examples of the commercials that the Biden campaign and the Trump campaign are either playing now or will be playing in the state of Georgia and get our panel to respond. Uh, We'll be back in a moment. You know, at the top of the show, uh, congratulated uh, Theron Johnson for becoming a new dad. But Jackie Cushman, I should have mentioned something (laughs) about you. You've become an empty nester. Your son, Robert, is off to college. What the heck, Jackie? It must feel very empty.
3: Well, we're getting very close. So um, I may have um, miscommunicated. My daughter left yesterday. My son actually has. A little oh, over a week. Oh. So I've got one week left oh, okay. to spend all of my time <laughs> with that 19-year-old boy, which I'm sure oh. he is looking forward to oh. every
4: minute. Oh, uh, uh, all <laughs> right. one, well, one well I just thought, we... you know. Yeah,
1: yeah.
0: Go,
4: yeah, go ahead, say, Bill, Real quick, one, one week before the party at Jackie's house. So, Jackie, <laughs> definitely
1: expect
3: like, my image. Darren, yeah. oh. Darren, Darren's been here. He knows. Jackie. Exactly. That's exactly right,
1: Darren. <laughs> Jackie. My wife, Janice, cried for more than a week when our daughter went off to college.
3: What great
1: things you have to look forward to. All right. Okay, enough of that. Um, So let's listen to a couple commercials. First, let's listen to the Trump spot that uh, is getting, uh, I don't know if it's on the air currently or about to go up, but let's listen to what the Trump campaign, what the messaging is that they want to get across. Here it is.
0: Joe Biden has embraced the policies of the radical left. Trillions in new taxes, crushing middle-class families. If you elect me, your taxes are going to be raised, not cut. Amnesty for 11 million illegal immigrants. Citizenship for 11 million undocumented folks. Reducing police funding. Yes, uh, absolutely. The radical left has taken over Joe Biden and the Democratic Party. Don't let them take over
4: America.
1: I'm Donald J. Trump, and I approve this message. Okay, so that's a Trump uh, message. Um, Now let's listen to a spot that the Biden folks are running. Although it talks about the retirement community, the villages in Florida, it is likely to get play in states like Georgia as well. Here it is.
0: Roger and I decided that we wanted to move to the villages. We were ready to retire. We were both 60. He was in the military. I had the business for 10 years. My husband and I are both concerned about the virus and catching it. I know other people have things a lot worse, but we feel trapped here because we can't go to be with the ones that we love. My husband and I have been gifted with two beautiful grandchildren. We try to see them as often as possible. And it's been six months and it's way too long. And while I don't blame Donald Trump for the virus, I blame him for his lack of action. And because of that, we're sitting here Zooming or FaceTiming with our grandchildren instead of hugging and kissing them. And that's hard. Joe Biden knows that every moment is precious. I trust Joe Biden to get this virus under control. I'm Joe Biden, and I approve this message.
1: Okay, Jim. Pretty different tones. Wow. Oh, absolutely.
5: Uh, first one uh, for, for just the highlight on the on the on the Biden one. Number one, uh, the topic was the coronavirus. I think that's a good sign that it's going to be sent. That's uh, Trump's handling of it is going to be central to to the, to the campaign over the next uh, next uh, three months. Uh, and then the focus on older people, older voters. Uh, I can't see my grandchildren. That's 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 a that's a very that's a that's a a definite play for the traditional Trump voter right there Uh, on the other one. The other one is 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 kind of uh, it's the 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 Trump Trump uh, commercial. Uh, Number one, it's it's an attempt to redefine uh, Joe Biden uh, in this in kind of the same way that they 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 redefined Hillary Clinton in 2016 uh, as as uh, as. uh because Biden has this reputation as a as a as a democratic moderate uh uh i think it's also interesting that they're not that that they're not talking about Trump there i think Trump has has pretty much decided that his his own persona has has been defined it's you know it's it's there it's there he's he's got to go after his his opponent uh i i think that's pretty clear Jackie, it's going to it's
1: going to be rough I apologize, Jim. I didn't mean to step on you there. Uh, Jackie, I haven't seen any of the fact-checking organizations fact-check check this particular spot, but but they have done that with any number of Trump spots, and they find an awful lot of misleading statements, um, things taken out of context. Uh, but do you think that this can be a successful approach to taking down Joe Biden, Jackie? I'm
3: going to probably say something shocking to Theron. Um, I, I don't like that. I don't like that ad. I don't like that ad at all. I don't like either one of the ads. I don't like Biden's ad either. I think it's sad that both campaigns are doubling down on whatever's negative or, or terrible, whether it's the coronavirus handling or scaring tactics to get people to the polls. I think it's terrible for both candidates. I'd like, to, I'd like to, to challenge them to actually put forth for the American people a vision of what we can do together if we move forward and what it would look like under their presidency. So I think both of the, the campaigns ads, in my opinion, are terrible, might work. But spoken they're terrible. like the, for
1: the woman. Country. Spoken like the woman who wrote the book that you just got to promote <laughs> on the show earlier. Theron, your take on the two spots?
4: Listen, unfortunately, there are people out there that believe what Jackie believes, but um, unfortunately, also there are people out here that um, believe that both acts are effective. And I and I just want to spend my time focusing on the Biden ad. I think to pick up on what Jim talked about. It definitely focuses on senior citizens, but it talks about values. It, it really is talking about the difference between governing and basically campaigning. And one of the taxes that, notice what she said in the ad, she don't blame him for the coronavirus. People are blaming this president because of his inability and inaction to help us get through it. He did not pay the attention that it needed. He did not take it as seriously as he should have, and he still sporadically Uh, wearing a mask at a time when we know we got to trust science and we got to trust the medical experts. And so while you see the Trump campaign is running a traditional Republican playbook uh, ad, the Biden campaign is trying to tap into the emotions of the voters. And I think that that ad absolutely accomplished that goal.
1: Stephen, jump in.
2: I think, uh, you know, I, I think you have to consider who these ads are for, and when you look at the Trump campaign ad, you know, the, the images of Bernie Sanders and Ilhan Omar and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, these, uh, these liberal caricatures of what Joe Biden could be is uh, trying to define him, uh, like was said earlier, as, you know, the liberal extreme of the party. And that's targeted towards Trump's base, to fire up the base, to get them out there to vote. But the Biden ad, you know, set in the villages in a white retirement community in Florida, the Biden campaign's ad isn't trying to, you know, fire up the Democratic base necessarily. It's trying to reach those Republican voters that could vote for him or those moderates that are trying to, uh, that are more concerned with the coronavirus than the squad. And so it's it's interesting to see the constituencies these ads are trying to reach uh, just as much as the tone. And I think one other thing I'll add is, you know, speaking of trying to define Biden and trying to paint him as a more uh, liberal candidate and more extreme, one thing I've noticed is that, you know, when President Obama listed a bunch of endorsements for candidates lately, none of them were in Georgia. And potentially it could be an effort to not distract or not use Obama's name and legacy as a negative for Republicans to define Georgia candidates like that,
1: um, I was struck, as Theron was, by the language in the Biden spot. Uh, the, the the woman who who we hear from the villages who says, "I don't blame President Trump for the coronavirus. I I blame him for his response." And Jim, I think that is a pretty smart way to approach it, uh, because. Any attempt to try to blame the president for a a virus would fall on deaf ears. And I think that makes the next thing she says even more uh, meaningful to the people who support Biden. Right. Look, if you're trying to reach out
5: to 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 voters who, who went with Trump in 2016, the last thing you want to do is to tell them that they made a mistake. You know, you can uh, and 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 I think, you know, I think if if if, if Biden the, the Biden campaign had done done what you said said and, and, and blamed Trump for the virus, that would be that would be turning off quite a few uh, people you're
1: trying to reach. Jim Galloway, you get the last word on today's show. What a great conversation. Thank you very much to you, Jim Galloway. I'll see you on Monday. We're going to talk more about schools and the problems trying to open. Jackie Cushman, Theron Johnson, Stephen Fowler. Loved having all of you here for today's show. I'm Bill Nigat. Have a great weekend. Take care, and please stay healthy. Bye-bye, everybody.